0: Welcome to the Extra Point Podcast, and I am Chris. I'm Joe. Timor Nesbitt. I'm Todd. And I'm Carlos. And you probably heard a new voice there, and that is Joe, our Utah church planter, and he is joining us for this issue, and we're going to be talking about the law this time through, and we have a lot of discussion. The law is one of those topics that is spoken of frequently throughout the New Testament. It's something that's revered by Jews, and yet a lot of times there's some misunderstanding what we mean when we speak of the law. So I think that's probably a good place
1: to start, is just what do we mean when we say the law? I think if you were to ask an average Christian on the street and say, would you, do you think we should obey the law of God? They would say yes, but then if you were to say to them, so we should obey all 620-some-odd commandments God gave the Jewish nation centuries ago, they would say no. So <laughs> right. this is a great question you're asking. I think when it comes to the law of God, as far as um, we understand in the New Testament, Christ fulfilling all of God's demands and bringing that to completion, and then— the heart of the law being love your neighbor and love God, yes, that is the responsibility of the follower of Christ to make sure that's expressed in his life. To that we would say, yes, we think that's what we should obey, that, that law, so to speak.
2: But the, you know, and you're right, and you're kind of getting um, ahead of our discussion here a little bit because he's told us what our responsibility is to it. So there's kind of, we do believe we should obey it and specifically has Todd defined it. But when we just mean simply what does law mean, the Hebrew word Torah or instruction, so that's what they're talking about, the Torah, the the instruction of God as given through Moses, sometimes known as the Mosaic Law. And so hopefully we'll get into, okay, do we obey Mosaic Law? Or as Todd has defined, do we obey kind of what we believe is the spirit of the law? And we'll get into that here in a moment.
1: Or do we simply... Obey the summarized version of them as well, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments.
0: Right, but we really believe in the Nine Commandments, right? Because <laughs> one of them doesn't count anymore. Which or at is, least we live that way. Right, the law of the Sabbath we don't we don't follow that. So it's the Nine Commandments that we. But that doesn't sound as good, especially if you're like trying to come up with a movie title. Cecil B. DeMille and the Nine Commandments. It just doesn't it have doesn't the ring, ring does does to it? it, does it?
1: See, already in our first 10 minutes, we ourselves are uh, all over the place on the law. <laughs> and that's the problem, because we we,
0: we, we we speak of the law, but there's not a common definition of what the, the law means. So, Carlos, you referenced that the word Torah means law, and if we were to ask a Jew what is the Torah or the books of Moses— they would point to the first five books of of the Old Testament. Um, And so you'll see Paul reference to the law and the prophets, meaning the entire old covenant that existed. What's the difference between the law and the Mosaic law or the
3: Mosaic covenant? Is there a difference? I think there is a difference between the law of Moses and the law of God in a sense. The law of God is his in one sense, his revealed will. The law of God is impressed upon the human conscience in a very real way. The law of God is uh, found in every generation. Abraham, in chapter 26, as Chris, you brought out earlier in a different discussion, uh, chapter 26 speaks of even Abraham obedient to God, even though there was no Decalogue, there was no Ten Commandments which had yet been given. So there is a, an ultimate law of God. And so, of course, Christians are to obey the ultimate law of God, but the big question is when it comes to the law of Moses, those many commandments which are explicitly given to the nation of Israel, do we obey those, and are those for us today directly?
1: And Wasn't the Mosaic Covenant a um, conditional arrangement given to the Israelites on how to live in community with God and each other? Or am I mistaken on that? Walk me through that, guys. I think Isn't that kind of the gist of... What was given to them on the mountain?
2: Yeah, of the covenants of the Old Testament, it is the conditional one. If you obey, then I will bless. If you disobey, then I will curse. It was meant to instruct, uh, as we'll get into in a moment, it was meant to lead us to uh, the understanding of our own sin and the nature of God. Um, But the law is, you know, when you spoke, Joe, of of the law versus the law of Moses— I think when the Bible talks about the term law, it's speaking of the law of Moses, the concept of the law of God, we do see the concept theologically in the, in the Bible, but I think most references to the law is the law of Moses.
3: Yeah, I think there are many references. One could even argue throughout the book of Romans that Paul utilizes the word law in multiple different ways. Um, and in James, of course, we, we hear of the law of Christ, and we see that exemplified as a royal law. And so I think we see different types of the word law utilized. We do know, I think, Todd, you just touched on this. Romans chapter 3 says that the law was given that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may be held accountable to God. The law is a revealer of sin. The the law is meant to uh, help us to see right to the heart of our great need for God. And that is, I would even say, it's his primary role. In the world today, as we go out and broadcast the good news of Jesus Christ.
1: So, when you say that's the primary role of the law, do you mean the one that Moses gave in the Old Testament?
3: Yeah, I mean the, the law of Moses. The primary use of the law of Moses would be to reveal sin, so that every mouth may be stopped and the world may be held accountable to God.
2: So here's a question: um, So, if the law of Moses its its primary ro- its primary role today is to Basically, convict of sin. Is that what you're saying? So, um, how how then is that law, if it was temporary and conditional, is there something? And this is why, is there something that underlies or is beneath the surface of the law of Moses that really is what you're referring to, and the law of Moses is just an expression of it? I'm assuming you're directing that at me, Joe. Um yeah, I think
3: it I think when we see the law of Moses, when I when I read the 10 commandments and I see the command to keep the sabbath and I read through other portions of the law in the Old Testament Pentateuch, I I see many commandments, many things that I'm very thankful for that I don't live under today. When I read those, though, I think I I do see the character of God displayed. I think we see his holiness. I think we see his goodness. I think in many ways we see his wisdom, perhaps even in ways we don't fully understand in our finite understanding of things. And I think when we read the Law of Moses, especially when we, we broadcast or proclaim the Law of Moses, we're helping people understand the character of God. And through that, of course, we have a great opportunity to bring them to the answer to the law, the one who fulfilled the law, the Savior of the law, which is Jesus.
0: So just to kind of summarize that we would agree that the the purpose of the law is to point out sin or to help us understand what sin is from God's perspective. Um, and when we talk then about um. I'm going to use the word the works of the law because Paul uses that frequently, especially in Galatians. Um, is that the kind of work? In other words, if I keep the law, will I be justified before God? Will, does that contribute to my salvation? If I am diligent and I I keep every... You know, the Bible uses the word jot and tittle. Every little iota of the law... If I make it through my life in that way, does that mean I am sanctified and and saved uh,
1: and justified in God's eyes? Well, keeping the law never really changes your nature issue. So no, it does not, um, as you said, justify you before God. No.
2: Yeah, I mean, Paul says that twice, Galatians and Romans, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. However, the requirement the of perfect righteousness which is uh made known to us in the law and through the law of moses it did need to be met Mm. the difference is is that we are not the ones who meet it the one who met it is jesus
1: and he met it and beyond just actions he met it in nature because he was fully god remember the ruler that came to christ he said all these i've kept and yet he was lacking something he couldn't solve his heart issue of greed because that's beyond an action in that sense on the outside. As an external thing, he might obey the law, but that mere obedience to an external form doesn't change his heart. And so no, no one's justified by mere, even 100% obedience to an external command. So how were the Old Testament saints saved?
0: Apart from the law, if the law meant nothing. How do we When we read Hebrews 11 and we read all those Old Testament saints, how were they justified
2: before God? They were saved the same way we are, by grace through faith. The way that was expressed is different. They trusted God that he would provide for them righteousness. And the way they demonstrated they trusted God is that they obeyed the law. So they did not know of the person of Jesus. Later on, they would receive promises that one would come. But in a real sense, they did trust that God would provide that. So
0: when we, um, let, me, let me carry this to the next level then, because when we, when we talk about legalism, what do we mean by legalism? What Give me a working definition of legalism as it relates to our biblical understanding of the law.
1: Well, some would say, and this may be a question, tomorrow, where you can lean in here a little bit, some would say it goes to what we just said, that, that by obeying certain external things, you can be justified in front of God. That's one aspect of legalism. Um, it's a pretty narrow one. Others see legalism as any rule you are going to place on me. <laughs> you know, and they're kind of like, well, that's a broad category. So I tend to see legalism more in the sense of if you think a list will give you favor with God, um, even if you got to pass it on to others or not, that's just a legalistic approach. What do you think, Tamor?
4: Well, I think like, uh, like when I first time heard the word legalism, I thought it was like, don't go to movies, you know, don't dance. Uh, you know stuff like that. So, so a lot of people think that legalism is is just that, um, and or even uh, people think it's uh, holiness. I mean, like you you don't pursue holiness, or if you're too much talking about holiness, that's legalism. And I don't think so. I think it's a good thing when you pursue holiness; not a legalism.
2: Yeah. So you can't be made right by God, and those who believe you can make yourself right—that would be one term of legalism there's also another expression um is that you are made more holy by obeying the law that's also legalistic thinking that's another aspect todd talked about one that's the other one so one might even be legalistic and they say hey you're saved by faith or or by grace through faith but in order to be made more holy you need to obey the law that would be another form or aspect of legalism
1: so a working man's definition. Could, would we maybe agree to this that legalism is something that's tied to law, somebody's law? Maybe it's um, the mosaic law, or maybe it's Joe's law, or maybe it's Tamar's law. But it's, it's somehow a, you're tethered to somebody's law in order to to be made righteous. I would say that's not healthy. So true I, even faults?
0: even I would go one step further and say even tethered to God's law that that. God's law cannot make us righteous, can it?
3: Not our obedience of it, no. You essentially asked a question earlier, Chris, that uh, what is legalism? And we really went down the road of we don't have to do anything to be righteous before God. And, of course, every Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christian would say amen to that. We don't have to do anything to be in right standing with God other than to believe upon the good work of Jesus Christ. However, true faith, as we'll be talking about, and we already have somewhat in the book of James, true faith is evidenced by works. In fact, the book of Hebrews even says to Christians, we must strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Hebrews chapter twelve verse fourteen, we are to be strivers for holiness. And if we're not striving for holiness, and by that I don't think he's referring to the Decalogue or the the law of Moses. I think he's referring to that royal law, that spirit of following Jesus Christ and His commands. If we're not striving for that, we don't exemplify a true faith, and we shouldn't have any expectation that we'll see the Lord.
1: So. If that's the case, Chris makes a valid point, asks a good question. Which of these laws then do we strive to obey in our pursuit of holiness? If it's not the Decalogue, if it's not the Mosaic law, if it's the spirit of the law, can we pick and choose? Can we choose the Nine Commandments, Mm -hmm. not the Sabbath one? I mean—
0: Or is it Todd's laws or Chris's laws or Carlos's? You know, do we get to pick the ones that— that we, we should follow and we write a book on it and that becomes
2: the first family way to holiness. <laughs> yeah. So I'll attempt to understand or, or answer that those questions and then you guys can jump in. But um, I think if you start with Jesus, how did he treat the law of Moses, right? Sermon on the Mount, the, the thread that permeates the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is the issues of the heart, right? Uh, he'll say, you have heard it said, if you commit adultery, I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So the issue is, I mean, there's all this uh, illustrations of the heart. So that's one key to understanding the law, even though in that sermon he says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, hmm. right? Uh, in a discussion with the Pharisees, he, they, are, they question him in Matthew 12 about his disciples doing what was unlawful on the Sabbath, but it really was unlawful according to their traditions, but he uses David as an example, who broke Mosaic law when he ate the showbread. And yet he praises David for doing that. It's like, okay, it's a heart issue. What was David doing there? He was preserving life, even though he broke the letter of the law, right? And then when he's asked, to, okay, what's a summary of that? The whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself paul will repeat the whole law is summarizing to love your neighbor as yourself so I think when you take into what law should we obey it's the spirit of the law which is contained in the two commandments love God love others so in the when we see those expressions in the laws of Moses we okay how does this specific law about my ox goring my neighbor how does that apply well love your neighbor as yourself so that's what we're called to obey, not necessarily maybe the specific statute.
0: So, as we as we try now to carry this forward into New Testament times, um, Paul would argue that, that the
2: force of the law is no longer relevant. Is that a true statement? Acts 15. Yeah, right. no they weren't. That was the big discussion. And even one who was a law keeper, James, said they didn't have to be circumcised. They were asked to refrain from a few things. Which I think get into the spirit of, like you love God, love your neighbors type thing, but the law of Moses, no. So when we when we talk about because uh, Jesus instituted a new
0: covenant, so when he when he instituted a new covenant, um, does that mean that the old covenant has passed away? That the the force of the law, the the
1: expectations has passed away. Here's where I'm at. I think the expectation and resulting consequence of the law has been completely fulfilled by jesus christ and we are no no longer under that the problem is that gets misinterpreted to think that we're like some um disobedient you know kind of odd we're going to do whatever we want and it does leave me in a quandary because then you wonder well what is the law of christ what is the spirit of the law and can we pick and choose i don't have a lot of answers i mean I, i still wonder some things i just know that i can't deny what's clearly said by jesus he came to fulfill the law. He did. God stamped approval in the resurrection. I'm really good with that.
3: And, and he's the one who came and fulfilled the law, and that's a glorious reality for us. We also have to remember that he's the one that gave the law. He's also the one who now has given us law. He's given us commandments. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, the church has given a very important commandment to go, to make disciples. And so we have the awesome joy of being free of the condemnation of the law that we could never keep, while at the same time knowing, having a relationship with, and being empowered by the Spirit of Jesus so that we can live out and carry
1: out the Spirit of the law that Jesus Christ already has fulfilled. So isn't that, you I mean, Carlos Carlos, well, I would agree with you, first of all. I agree with you, but how, doesn't that leave a lot of Christians in, in this nebulous place? Like, well, then do I decide what has the Spirit of the law? I'm Or is that just the way this is now?
2: No, I think we stick with what Jesus says. How did he summarize it? And so those two commandments, how did he summarize? So those are the principles that drive the whole law. So and you think about it, Paul will say this in in Galatians 3. He says that before Christ came, the law was either our tutor or guardian. That's that idea like, hey, it kind of held our hand and took us to school. The, the word picture, w- the rival at school is Christ. He's where he took us to. How did the law do that? It pointed out how holy God is and how sinful we are. And we in ha- ourselves have nothing to do about it or can do anything about it. So in that sense, the law is still good. It'll still reveal you, your sin. It will still show you that God is holy. And it will still point you to your need for Christ. So I think in that sense, and again, I know... uh, we can be afraid to, well, which ones can we pick and choose? If you understand I think the underlying foundation of why those commandments were given, I think that has a lot to teach us.
1: Which is why I would venture on thin ice here, guys. Uh, But it, it seems like theologically, textually, we can say then that we're not responsible to obey the Ten Commandments. If it was all fulfilled, then we are under the law of Christ, the spirit of the law, but most technically that was for a specific time and place we're not under that why can't someone just say that sometime you know what we don't have to obey the 10 commandments i feel like they're gonna they feel like they're afraid of being sued or something if they
3: say that you know i'll say it todd you don't have to obey the 10 commandments <laughs> however as i understand it nine out of those 10 and chris you've mentioned that number 9 nine out of 10 are at least in some ways Reaffirmed in the New Testament Yes, We aren't commanded to follow the Sabbath That's the one that's that's not reaffirmed In the New Testament but We are given a day, the, the, the Lord's day We are given a, a sense that's in which right. we are to meet For rest with each other Which is the spirit of the Sabbath And so that's very much active today When I read the Law of Moses in the Old Testament I don't come away thinking Okay, I failed at number 3, number 4 And number 5 this week I don't come away thinking oh, I've got to do better to keep number six and number seven this week, I come away thinking God's character is glorious, and he has revealed his will for mankind. And I'm delighted in the fact that Christ has accomplished this for me. And what's more, he is now through his spirit accomplishing this through me.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm not favoring adultery or murder at all. I'm not saying that those aren't laws in our country or even the law of Christ. My point was, it seems like we should be able then to say, "Well, this is no longer valid, and this is valid." What you just explained. So, would you guys say that the law of Christ is a legitimate um, label for what the New Testament teaches for new believers?
2: Yeah, I think that's the royal law of lib- or the law of liberty that James refers to that we've been in. Um, I I like to use the spirit of the law just because that word spirit communicates. Um, but you know, going back to the Ten Commandments question. Um, you know, are we, do we need to obey the 10 commandments? Again, I go back to the idea of the spirit of the law because four of those commandments are directed to how we treat God and the other six are directed how we treat man. Again, that's why Jesus says these are the two foremost commandments. And I think, you know, when we talk about the 10 commandments, they're in the law of Moses, but they're kind of a summary of what's contained in the rest of the law. So again, I think we're getting to the principles and spirit of it, and we can have a discussion about the Sabbath, and that's not the point here. But again, it's directed to God and to man, and that's the way in which we express our obedience to the spirit of the law, or we can say the law of God. Let me ask a pastoral question: um,
0: How how would you respond to the person who says, "Wow, I know I've broken these laws, and I've asked God to forgive me, but I just I don't feel forgiven." I I still feel the weight and the guilt of my past, and those things just weigh heavy upon me. How How do you respond to that person?
4: I, I think as a pastor, your goal is to preach Christ and Him crucified. Again, like we talked about, that He fulfilled the law, and so He's the uh, He's the goal to point as a pastor to Christ. Look what He has done. He forgives sinners. He came to forgive sinners who disobeyed and broke God's law. And so, and so we, when we put our trust in him alone, we're forgiven in Christ.
2: And I would say to continue with uh, feelings of guilt, the way to redirect those, because basically that's an expression saying, well, okay, I believe what you just said, Tamar, but we're basically saying if I still feel guilty, it's because we're saying Jesus is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so you can redirect those feelings of guilt and say, no, he is enough. I don't have to feel guilty.
0: And I think a lot of times those are rooted in our own performance mentality. Like, I still have to do good. I still have to, you know, God's got a marker out there that I've got to meet in order to be fully saved in his eyes. And you're exactly right, Carlos. Christ is not enough. There's more for me to do. I've got, there should be something more for me to do. And that voice plays over and over in our head.
4: And we try to oppress God by uh, jumping hoops, you know, like, okay, if I do better this, and then he will love me more. And and, and Jesus says in John 17 that he, God loves us the way he loved the Son mm-hmm. equally. Uh, it's just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to perform more to show that, oh, God, I don't feel like you love me more. I need to do more of this. No, we, we, uh, we love and we do things because he loved us first.
2: Amen to that, Tomorrow, If I was ever going to tattoo a verse on my back, it would be that one, that he loves us the way he loves us. You're exactly right. Thank you, Carlos. He can't love us any more than he already has.
1: Let's do a podcast on tattoos now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Let let me, uh, before we kind of jump into some of the modern day applications of this, let me just summarize, I think, what some of the things we've talked about. Um, Would we agree that when we talk about the law, we can talk about it in both a specific sense... The The law of Moses the, the, That we see um, spelled out By Moses That was an expectation We also see the law Reference to more of a general um, Pointing to the Old Testament um, And that those two Definitions work Side by side with each other Is that a safe understanding of the law When we see it from a New Testament perspective I'm good with that Summary we got thumbs up all around here. So <laughs> and then secondly, when we talk about legalism, we're really talking about people that are are seeking to find uh justification or um they that they're, they're hinging their salvation upon their performance or the keeping of the law. That that's what we mean by legalism when we are referencing that.
1: Yes, and I would just add to those two summaries. Oh, by the way, is there a thumbs up on that? I mean, we're kind of looking for a yeah. I think James does a really good job. We're in that book now. That's what kind of prompted this podcast. James does a good job of using the word law. He uses three ways, like perfect law, law of liberty, and um, royal law. law. Yeah, But you could textually, I'll I'll post this in the next few weeks, you can textually show that each of those has a correlation back to the gospel. You know, not a Mosaic law reference only. Maybe for the Jewish readers there may have been some um, implication, but I think it's interesting that how he— how it uses that? There's a sense in which it is the law of Christ, the spirit of the law, the gospel. So uh, James seems to do a really good job of not letting us revert back to thinking, "Oh man, this is the 620-some odd things Moses gave us." But saying more instead, Christ fulfilled that, and let's now follow in His footsteps in the spirit of that.
0: And I think again, just to keep one thing in mind, as we as we do talk about James, if he was living among us today, we would probably think, "Wow, this guy's strict."
1: He's the best lawkeeper there. Just. Was. James he, the Just, right? James
0: the Just, and so he he was a strict lawkeeper, and yet he had that balance, and that's a really good perspective. Um, when we when we kind of look at some of the modern day applications of the law, we've we've got two um, contrasting um, examples that we're going to talk about. And Carlos, I'm going to throw the first one to you uh, simply because I know we've talked about this in the past, and it's something that you can expand upon, but. Give us a, a definition of antinomianism.
2: What, how would you describe antinomianism? So antinomianism is the man-centered uh, response to salvation by grace through faith. And what I mean by that is, since Jesus did it all, and all I have to do is believe in order to be saved, I therefore can go and do whatever I want because Jesus paid for it. It, and the word means anti-law, so hey, no one rules over me, I'm saved by grace, leave me alone, I'm going to continue to do whatever I want. So I, mean, I think that'd probably be like a good working man's definition of anti-law or antinomianism. And the contrast to that is one that has been brought up to us a couple
0: times by people here at First Family just asking questions, and it's something that is known as the Hebrew Roots Movement. Um, you can someone maybe give a working definition of the Hebrew Roots Movement. And let me preface that by saying it's really hard to come up with a definition because it is a a very loosely um, coordinated um, belief system. And really each group can kind of have their own doctrinal standards that they're going to adhere to under a broad umbrella of Hebrew Roots Movement. So I say that almost as a disclaimer, like everything that we're going to probably say in the next few minutes here, <laughs> someone within the Hebrew Roots yeah. Movement can disagree with and say well no, that's not what we believe at all. But what what would be a yeah. a broad definition of it?
1: Can we can we back up for a minute though? I think you mentioned about antinomianism and Carlos was expressing his what you talked about. And that's been around for a while. Even I think Paul talked about those who would want to have that attitude. I think that same thing's true even in the uh, opposite view. Now, you said it's called in this current day Hebrew roots, but even back to the Pharisees, I mean, we mm-hmm. um, this has been around as long as What I'm saying. So this is not a new thing. It's called this now, but this idea of having to keep the law has been around just as long as those who thought they didn't do anything to the law. I want to kind of make sure we understood these two extremes have always been, uh, we'll call it terrorizing the gospel, you know?
2: Right. There's nothing new under the sun. These are just contemporary expressions of it. So I think that was Abraham Lincoln, wasn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. Something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. We need to talk to Chris afterwards.
2: So uh, just a, a simple definition for what I found just uh, looking into Hebrew roots um, is basically that Christians are mandated or requ- are, they are required to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved as well as in order to be sanctified or made holy. Um, They say things like Jesus, when he came to die on the cross, he didn't abolish the law. He actually renewed it or reaffirmed it. And uh, again, that's something that has been around since the early days of the church.
1: Acts 15 being the prime example. And isn't that the verse that they use, though? Because we wouldn't say he came to destroy the law. We'd say he came to fulfill it. And so then they take that and say even further beyond that, right?
2: Some of them do. Yeah,
1: I'm sorry. So... A verse that
0: they would point to is Matthew 23, um, and it says then, this is starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. And so they would point to that, and they would say, See, Jesus is telling us that the Pharisees were right in what they were teaching, they sat on the seat of Moses. They they were the teachers of the law. They were right in what they were teaching, and we should follow their teaching. How would we respond to that, that verse?
4: I think they should uh, keep reading the whole chapter, because in that chapter, Jesus kind of goes hard on Pharisees and those who, like, he calls them, Woe to you. I was like... Uh, I, I don't remember how many times, but a lot And that chapter is just kind of like uh, empty tombs, white tombs. He called that, and it's like, what? And so I think they need to see the context of the chapter.
2: But he does still, I mean, he, even in that phrase, do what they tell you, but not what they do. He, and then when he gives woes upon them, he calls them out for their hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. But going back to doing what they tell you from the law of Moses is they sit in that seat you got to remember these are these are people who at that time currently were living under the law okay that transition hadn't taken place yet so i think that's one way to to view that text um because i think they would jump on later on in 28 where jesus says hey all that i've taught and commanded you you go and now obey and just kind of to answer that maybe one of you can joe you can expand on this um you know, when we talk about uh, our understanding of a given topic, and here we're talking about our relationship to the law, we need to take in the whole breadth of what Scripture has to say about it. We can't pick and choose, like, well, I believe that one and not that one. So to add to the words of Jesus, we also need to understand what Paul says about it, what James says about it, maybe even John. and And so maybe you can expand on that. What else does yeah. the New Testament say about the law?
3: I mean, I would certainly agree that I would make the case with someone who held to that perspective, Uh, try to make a case of how Paul was consistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ. As I understand it, and I I don't know a great deal about this movement, but they would reject all of the teachings of Paul. But I think a very clear case can be made that... uh, the Christian is saved only exclusively by faith in Jesus Christ, by a repentant spirit that received his gift, even in the Gospels. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Christ tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he comes before God and he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, etc., etc., tax collectors even. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. Essentially, I'm such a wonderful, righteous person. And the tax collector stands up and I love this part. He beats his breast, it says, which is a symbol of great humility. He beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's a man who recognizes his sinful condition before God, which means the law has had its effect upon his life. He knows he's a sinner, and he beats his breasts, and he says, God, be merciful. And then Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And so we see passages like that. We even see in Matthew chapter 19, the rich young man who comes to Jesus Christ, and he won't. He won't surrender his life. He won't see his need for Jesus alone, and he walks away without salvation. And so even without Paul, we can clearly bring the gospel to someone who's bought into this kind of a perspective.
1: To more mention context, I think you did as well, Carlos. Would it be safe to say that here he may be speaking to those who were in Judaism, which is what the Pharisees led, and the temple had not been destroyed yet, the official end of that? Christ had not died yet or been resurrected, so would it be safe to say, for those still in Judaism, yes, you should do what they do, just not in the way that they do it. Would that be, or how? how what do you guys feel about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's specifically what they do, what they say, not what they do, because they weren't doing it. Okay. But yeah, you're right they they were they were uh, Jews under the law. Even at the writing of Hebrews, we see that that system was passing away. Right, the end of. Of uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We went through that last year. So, yeah, I mean, this is a transitional stage, but I think the apostles give us, again, more light on the issue. Mm-hmm. Jesus touches on it like Joe was talking about, but, you know, when Paul's discuss- discussion in Galatians, if you're going to go get circumcised under the law, Christ is of no value to you. Why? Because you're trying to earn your way in, you're not give- receiving the gift of Christ. The law was meant to lead you to Jesus. Mm-hmm. It wasn't meant to save you. So Paul will say that. Um, James talks about uh, this, you know, not the law of Moses, but the royal law, the law of liberty. Um, John will talk about how one is saved in the sense of belief or faith in the Son of God. So again, the apostles, they, they don't contradict Jesus. And you have to take into account what they say. And when you take the whole picture, I think we get a good view of what the law is. And it's not what the Hebrew Roots Movement teaches. Could I ask a question? Uh, as someone who doesn't have a great understanding of the Hebrew Roots
3: Movement, when they when it's said that they believe one must obey the law in order to be saved, the law of Moses, do they literally mean obey every single jot and tittle at all points of one's life in order to be saved? Because I think one could simply say, how has your experience been over the last two days? At doing that, let alone the entirety of your life. so that would be an important question, I think. maybe I'm misunderstanding it.
0: No I think I think if uh, and I know they don't have a lot of regard for Paul, but if he was sitting here as part of our podcast, that's one of the things he would probably start with asking is, okay, so we're, let's just take your assumption that it's all based upon the law, the Jewish law. And, and Todd, I'm going to go back to your reference. How many of you live in roof, how, homes with flat roofs and a parapet around your roof? Mm-hmm. H- show of hands. Okay, well, let's start with that. If you don't have a parapet around your roof, see you in hell. What are we talking about <laughs> here? <laughs> exactly. yes,
1: man.
0: I, and I, I think you know. So let let me give you a couple of the the thing. And again, we're we're talking about this in a general sense, and and there are a, a million different. Understandings of the Hebrew Roots movement, but I think these are some things that have um, that would help us understand whether or not this is truly a Christian. Um, I'm going to call an offshoot of Christianity. In other words, you can be a believer and part of this uh, and and follow these beliefs, or whether this is what we would call an alternative or a cult, more of a cult type of religion. But here's here's some of the things that I came across. Um, much of the Jewish Roots Movement, and this is Stephen Katz that's expressing this, he said, much of the Jewish Roots Movement, or Hebrew Roots Movement, is actually based on later Jewish rabbinic tradition. So it's not even the Law of Moses. It's more based on, on rabbinical Jew- Judaism. Um, and this was the question, the very question, that was being wrestled with in Acts 15, that's, that was very clearly answered in that passage. Um a lot in the, in the uh, Hebrew Roots Movement, they divide the Old Covenant into two portions, the sacrificial system and the laws and regulations, and they argue that Christ only fulfilled the, the sacrificial system, that when he paid the price on the cross, he fulfilled that portion, but he later said that, that the, not one jot or tittle of the of the laws and regulations would pass away, that those are still in force. So they divide those two into um,
2: two different sections of the law. That's a good example. I might have to write that down of what we call eisegesis, reading a pre-understanding into a text as opposed to gaining a meaning out of the text, exegesis, which is proper. Again, I I think they're superimposing their theology on those passages. And I think we would be safe to say that if you're declaring... And in fact, I don't think, I know we're safe to say, if you declare that you need to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, you are a heretic, that is a cult, that is another gospel, and I'll just say what Paul said, you should be damned to hell.
0: So, you you may be sitting out here thinking, wow, I know some people that are in this movement, I know some friends who are in this Hebrew Roots movement, I think... Um, these are questions that you would want to make sure that you are going to explore with them, that they are, you know, I think there's a difference between um, I'm thinking of one of our missionaries that came and visited us and um, he wore a prayer shawl and he had the, the little yarmulke ha- head covering. He 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 ministers within a Muslim country and, and I think um, I have no doubt that he does this as a means of, of devotion and expression of his own Christian faith, uh, he's not pointing to the fact that he has a yarmulke on his head as a, as a that, that's why he's saved. That he does that, he keeps his head covered. But there are others very clearly that are are placing great significance on the fact that they are keeping the law, and that is why they are right with God, and that is why those who claim another way of salvation are not. I came across this, I thought this was very, they they place a huge amount of emphasis upon the Hebrew language. Um, As we were talking off microphone before we started, they believe that the New Testament was delivered in Hebrew and Aramaic and not in, in Greek. And so one of the claims is that if you are confessing any other name but the Hebrew name of Yeshua, that you have a false salvation. So if you prayed a prayer in the name of Jesus, you are an unsaved person. Only the name of Yeshua can save you.
1: Almost becomes like the language is more important than the uh than the person. Yeah.
4: And they and they argue that uh that Jesus the word came from uh Yah uh Zeus. So God is Zeus. And so that's why they believe it's a pagan uh, name, and so they will argue that uh, Yaush, Ye Jesus is supposed to be, you know, where Yahshua, and so they took it in Susan, Jesus, yeah.
2: And yet, those changes are just differences within languages and how they develop. Uh, you know, that here, here's one thing that if there's anything redeemable in this movement, is they, they think that we've lost the Jewishness of our faith. There's a good sense to that in that. That Jewishness of our faith will help us understand the background of the biblical text. That's good, but to say that we need to adopt that lifestyle and those manners and customs under the law of Moses—that's not good. I think one of the um, one of the
0: challenges that that we all need to accept as as part of the evangelical church in America. One of the people that have studied the Hebrew roots movement. One of the attractions that they see that is drawing people into this is what they called um, the increasingly anemic evangelical church in America. And I think as we as we talk about all of this, we have to realize that within the church as a whole, there is a general inclination that it's becoming more and more anemic.
1: Yeah, the answer to anemic Christianity isn't more laws. It's a greater focus on the cross, mm. I mean, the gospel fuels everything for us, and it doesn't lead to antinomianism, nor does it lead to Phariseeism. I'm not saying it leads to, like, we don't have the perfect balance either, I'm sure. I've got a long ways to go, but it doesn't lead to those two extremes, I'm sure. Uh, a, A greater gospel focus on Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of all that God demands leaves us with an incredible gratitude that out of that flow's a life of service and indebtedness that, you know, we'll go wherever he says, do whatever he says We would lay our life down for this one, but not out of a requirement, but out of gratitude.
2: And I don't think there's anything wrong in saying Todd that no, you don't do that perfectly, but the way in which God has kept you at that focus is through cross centered uh, teaching from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So we're not perfect in any ways. And yet the way or the means by which God keeps us, Center of the road, if I can put it that way, is you make much of the cross, make much of Jesus as he is presented to us in the Bible.
1: So the question I would have is, because they would say to us, I, I assume, I'm with Joe, I don't know much about them either, but I bet they would say, well, we're making much of Jesus because he made much of the law. But it seems to me the real core bad seed in this is, so what makes you and keeps you saved? And if anything but the name of Jesus... Is inserted there Or even Let's just say Yeshua As they would mm-hmm. It seems like If they answer that Any other way We've got Like Carlos said We've got heresy On our hands
3: How, how do they handle the, the apostles Chris Or the other guys I mean How do they treat Peter Do they consider him To be an authoritative source um, Because Christ In Matthew chapter 16 Says that the keys Of the kingdom of heaven as i understand matthew chapter 16 the keys to the kingdom of heaven are handed right down to peter and to the church that came from the apostles and if we if we say that everything that these men went on to do was void and without uh, god's uh, god's uh, stamp of approval then what has jesus just said about his church that they would go and start i think one of the uh, and
0: Tamor alluded to this a little bit when he was talking about um the reference to Jesus, that, that there's a, um, almost like a paganization or a, a gentilization, it's hard to say, but that the, the New Testament has been flavored over the centuries with a Gentile perspective. And therefore, uh, you know, again, we, we not much of Paul's writings can be trusted because he is seeing it through, uh, he's being interpreted through Gentile eyes. And so um, that's why we need to go back to the Hebrew roots of what we believe, not this Gentilized New
2: Testament that we have in front of us, but the Hebrew roots of our faith. You know, and this practice of uh, picking and choosing which scriptures we're going to accept is old. This is nothing new. Uh, There's been heretics in the early days of the church that they didn't like what one apostle said, so they just ejected it from the canon or the Bible. Um, So, I mean, I think you make a good point. Jesus said he would build his church. He sent the 12 out. He appeared to Paul specifically, gave him direct commands. Paul received the gospel, not at the University of the Apostles, but at the very feet of Jesus himself. I mean... Yeah, to, to to malign Paul is to malign Jesus. Not that uh, Paul was perfect, but he was Jesus's sent one, and so, uh, and even Peter gives credence to Paul's uh, writings as scripture. First Peter chapter three verses fifteen through sixteen, and they distort these things which Paul writes as they do the rest of the scriptures. So, um, really, this this Hebrew roots has very shaky foundation, if at all. And uh, it would be our recommendation. I don't think anyone disagree at this table that if uh, you should stay away from it and warn others that you know that are in it.
0: I think it's safe to assume—not assume, but to say—that most Christian cults, and you can name your flavor, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, um, even Hebrew roots—that cults are often based in a that the seed of it is in a, is in Scripture. That they take a verse or a, a small passage of verses, and it's from there that they launch this entire new belief system because they are, in their eyes, correcting the errors of Scripture that have transpired over the decades, centuries. And, and so they are, there is a route. They can take you to a verse, and they can say, here's the here's why we believe what we believe. But it's it's taken completely out of context. And that is where
3: most of the cults, Find their power. Yeah, this sounds an awful lot like Mormonism. Which this is Joe speaking. Is where I'm planning to start a church in the heart of Utah. Um, essentially, the early church has uh, not handled the message of Jesus Christ accurately. The early church has uh, failed to live up to the expectations. And uh, it is the true church, the church of the Latter-day Saints, that is the church that Jesus Christ puts his stamp of approval on today. And so it sounds very similar to some of those cults that you named off.
0: Any other comments before we wrap up this podcast, this special podcast on the law? And uh, we touched on uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement um, and its counter-antinomianism. These are all... Issues that that are being batted around, but as Carlos mentioned, this is as old as as the New Testament itself. And we see uh, many of these arguments um, that Paul specifically just hammering away on. uh, You know, the entire book of Galatians could be summarized with this this argument, that the the contrast between the law and and grace and our, our place and position as Christians... And our relationship to the law. So these are, um, these are old arguments, but they're always, every generation seems to put their own little new spin on it and their new direction that they can carry these things. So uh, very interesting. I hope you found this podcast informative and um, instructive. And again, uh, you can find all of our resources at our new website, firstfamily.church. That's www.firstfamily.church. And uh, we can um, obviously uh, would love to hear any response that you may have to that. And you can email any of us at info at ffclife dot com. And we can forward that on to any of the individuals in this podcast. So until next time, I'm Chris. I'm Joe. I'm Timor. I'm Todd. And I'm Carlos. Have a blessed week.